This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Point Loma Nazarene University, where we have the rare privilege of hosting Paul Farmer, an anthropologist, a medical doctor, a professor, an author, and one of the founders of Partners in Health, an organization that provides the best health care available to some of the most vulnerable populations. He's written hundreds of scholarly articles. His books about global health, and Haiti in particular, have educated us. His book, To Repair the World, and his most recent, In the Company of the Poor, have inspired millions more. Many were motivated by the book about him, written by Tracy Kidder, Mountains Beyond Mountains, Dr. Farmer has dedicated his life to improving healthcare for the world's poorest people. His group has 12 sites in Haiti, and they are in several countries around the world. He's a professor at Harvard, a physician at Brigham Hospital in Boston, a United Nations special advisor. He's won every conceivable humanitarian award, and now, at the peak of his career, is here at Point Loma, Nazarene University, Would you welcome Dr. Paul Farmer? Wow, thank you. Wow, thank you. Wow, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, wow, thank you. I, I kind of feel like a movie star or something. Um, I heard they have those sorts of creatures out here in California. They can't run. Take that, Brad Pitt. Um, actually, he's interested in global health equity, too. Um, I'm going to just, as, as uh, Dean said, I'm going to give a short uh, presentation. Um, I've... Uh, been working in this field, which you know, I'm going to call global health equity for um, all of my adult life. I'm very lucky to have uh, ended up in Haiti shortly after graduating from college and before going to medical school, and talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but it's very heartening to come here. It's my first time uh, here. It's very heartening to see so many people. And I met with some students earlier. The the kind of discussion that we've been having. Uh, today has, has meant a great deal to me. I've found it very uplifting, so thank you for that. And as, as a, it's hard to use theoretical constructs, or not hard, it's not, actually it's kind of boring to use theoretical constructs, um, or notions like global health equity without some sort of illustration of what that has come, what that means uh, to me, to lots of other folks who are involved in it, and why we're using, stringing those three words together. And, uh, and so I'm going to try to stick with a, a, a narrative of sorts, a personal narrative. And since there are so many students here and we're at a university, I'm going to say that I first became involved in much of this work as a college student. Uh, in fact, one of the questions I had today from uh, an undergrad here was, you know, what did you regret, uh, what do you regret looking back at when you were a student? And I thought for a little bit longer than was seemly, uh, and I said, well, not getting involved in this work earlier. Um, there's a literacy 
to be gained just from experience and just from sticking with the problem, any problem, any vexing social problem. And surely health disparities um, pose problems uh, that are difficult to understand and to address. So that's why I'm so happy to be here and see so many students interested in global health equity. And there are people all over the world, including the places where I just work. I just came from Russia, um, from Siberia, in fact. Did you know you can get from Siberia to here in only two flights? (laughs) It's true. Siberia, Moscow, Los Angeles, two flights. Now, it's on Aeroflot, so you have to decide if that's really... It was actually very good service. So, starting from this narrative, I have been accused of using this story too often, and then I bristle and say, but wait, it is my story. (laughs) I went in college, um, hadn't really heard of Haiti, really, that I can remember until I went to college. And that must not be true because I had grown up in Florida, Um, right? I mean, it's an hour and a half to Haiti. And and I, I, I really, I bet when I uh, enrolled in, at Duke University in a, long, a long time ago, in 1970, I bet I couldn't have, if someone said, was, what is the relationship between Florida and Haiti, or between the United States and Haiti, I wouldn't have been able to say things that I could say now, learn to say later. For example, Haiti was, I think at the time, about the third largest trading partner of Florida, the state of Florida. The United States had occupied Haiti for 20 years in the 20th century, in the century I was born in, and, and the century during which I came of age, in a way, because that happened in Haiti as well. And so there's a, I, I don't say that proudly. I learned most of this after going to, to Haiti, and this being global health equity, not just about Haiti. But I was lucky enough, after college, to end up in a squatter settlement. And um, a squatter settlement, I didn't, probably didn't know what that was either, um, this particular squatter settlement uh, called Conch, and some of you have been there since, was created by a development project. And how, you might ask, could a squatter settlement where people are displaced from their land and they were uh, peasant farmers, how could a development project create refugees? And it's, it turned out wasn't that an un- unusual story. It was a hydroelectric dam, and Haiti desperately needed Electric still needs electrical power, but I ended up in one of those places behind the dam. And so people were living uh, up on the hills, having been displaced quite literally by the rising waters. And now, looking back 30 years later, I think how lucky I was to start thinking about health and healthcare seriously in a squatter settlement. Because all the confident notions and ideas and constructs around sustainability, uh, around appropriate technology, and the list goes on. You've heard the terms, the buzzwords. They really get challenged by living in a place where people have lost their ability to feed their families and have jobs. Um, And that doesn't always happen, right, with uh, landless People, there are cities all around the world where people don't have land. This one among them, you know. But this was, these were landless peasant farmers. A very different situation. So I learned a lot just by being there with my Haitian colleagues in that year. And it changed me in ways for which I'll always be grateful. It set me on this path, which I 
you know, which, again, is, has room for a lot of different people, meaning we need everybody involved in this kind of work, in my view. It doesn't matter if you're a physician or a nurse. Thinking about global health equity is an important challenge because there's always going to be people who are not well-served by a system, even a good one that has a decent uh, uh, social protection, it's always going to be people who are poorly served. And finding out who they are and how to help them is important, even in the best of systems. Now, this was the absence of a system, right? When people are pushed off their land, don't have access to education, health care, electricity, or more land, you know, that's a, clearly a, a, a development project that doesn't work well enough to protect, to avoid, later learn how to, in medicine, do no harm, was the, it's supposed to be the mantra of medicine, but there are development projects that do harm as well. And there are well-intentioned efforts to promote development or to promote healthcare, access to healthcare that do harm. And, and being honest about that and thinking about it is one of the most difficult parts of global health equity. In 1983, the year before this picture was taken, I ended up in a city called Mirbalet in the Central Plateau. And some of you have been there. The major market town in that part of Haiti. Um, and I didn't have any skills at all. Um, one of the science teachers here um, was saying, well, we know that you went there during medical school, uh, went to Haiti. And I said, I corrected her. I said, no, in fact, I went before medical school. I had no skills at all. Uh, it was an, another mouth to feed. But I did have, you know, passion. And, and I'm still in the same part of Haiti, um, along with many others. But that first year was an exercise in defeat. And I didn't even go back to medical school or to my interview in December of 1983. I didn't, didn't go back and say, you know, this was a really bad experience. It was an exercise in futility. I didn't say any of those things. I said, it was great. I love what we're doing. We're doing a good job. We weren't doing a good job. And, but it takes a long time to acknowledge that you know, these projects, just because they're there, doesn't mean they work effectively. I'll just describe what it was like every day. There was a clinic in a, in a town with a doctor, a brilliant guy, actually, young Haitian doctor, a pharmacy, which was really a bunch of who knows what was in the, these. They were in jugs. That, that probably was a hint that maybe we're not talking about high-end pharmaceuticals. Um, and it, the pharmacist was not a pharmacist, and there was a, there was, the nurse was a licensed practical nurse, hardworking, but you know, didn't, she didn't have an RN. And me, taking blood pressures and writing down names. Now I ask you, what sort of skill did a young American who was 23 years old have in writing down Haitian names as they were coming in? <laughs> Pretty marginal. And I certainly learned how to take blood pressures, but at the end of each day, I would think mostly to myself without that many people to discuss this, with whom to discuss this, you know, this, are we really doing any, any good? And so in 1984, leaving that town, Mirbalé, and I'd like you to remember the, the name, and going to a squatter settlement where, where there's no clinic at all, there was no, there were, wasn't any modern housing. Again, squatter settlement was actually a relief because it's a chance to start again. And this is how we started. We rebuilt, we built another clinic as Partners in Health, which was being born at the time in Haiti first and then the United States. And we, of course, designed the whole thing incorrectly, had to tear it down, build it again, 
you know, again, an exercise in lack of coordination, lack of understanding what needed to be done. And it wasn't a problem that we saw later during the earthquake, right, where the buildings were poorly constructed. That wasn't the problem. This, these were well constructed. They just weren't designed really correctly to meet the needs of what we were trying to do. And one of the reasons is because we really didn't have a lot of places to turn for advice. Like, how, did you, how do you build a pro-poor health system in a place where everything is a commodity, where you pay for everything? And I think that's still a problem that we're struggling with. Now, to skip ahead, we learned that in order to serve the most vulnerable, we could not commodify every lab test, x-ray, medication. We had to find a way to finance that. Healthcare financing is, to this day, I think, the biggest challenge we face at Global Health Equity. How do we finance and sustain it? And we ended up building this hospital, linking it to clinics where the majority of healthcare delivery can and should occur in clinics, not hospitals, right? But you need hospitals. And then community health workers to help with chronic disease. This is the model I wish we had in the United States. It's the model that we would later use to respond to new problems like AIDS. So global health equity, this is a typical patient, 1998, later became a good friend of mine, comes in, dying of AIDS and tuberculosis. Same guy, a few months later. If you have that delivery system, that is, someone comes in really sick, needs a hospital, connected to an ambulatory clinic and to community health workers, people get better. And that's true of epilepsy, major mental illness, etc. Go through your, your list. And we weren't using this term so much, global health equity. Actually, we were by 1998. But we knew that, again, the arguments that there was no way to do this in settings of poverty because the patients were poor was not one that we could embrace. We had to find new ways to bring resources to problems like this. Now, this actually occurred with AIDS, which is pretty, I think, pretty cool. I, uh, back to personal narrative, I was training in... I graduated, I was in the class of 1988 medical school and did a PhD and finished on the SLOW program and started my training at, at a big teaching hospital, a beautiful place, the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston in 1991 after another year in Haiti. And then I trained in infectious disease and the struggle was intense at that time. And some of you are old enough to remember AIDS comes along, becomes the leading infectious killer of young adults as well. In this city, across California, across the eastern seaboard, all the American cities. When I trained in medical school, the beds were a lot of people sick with AIDS inside America's teaching hospitals. But they all went home because they got antiretroviral therapy, and that really started in the mid-1990s. So in Haiti, if you're going between Harvard and Haiti, and you have people on the one end of that trajectory, you're begging them to take these medications, and on the other end, they're begging you for the medications. Now I ask you, is that sustainable emotionally? Of course not. It's just, you know, one person can make that trip in three hours. Did I mention I came here from Siberia to see you all? <laughs> in any case, it's too close you know, it's to sustain that social fiction. So we fought, and we had a lot of people fighting with us for global health equity, including the AIDS activists, proud to say a lot of them American. And this is what happened. This is uh, in those terrible years between discovery of effective therapy and delivery is there was activism and major funding moved into AIDS treatment. And the United States played a big role with something called PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So keep that in mind 
when you're thinking about things you might want to be proud of as American taxpayers, those of you who are. Those of you who aren't, you should pay your taxes. <laughs> so the delivery decade, just to give an illustration for open this up to one that is very exciting. Um, from Rwanda, we were invited by the government of Rwanda, the Ministry of the Public Health Authorities, to come work there on and doing something similar to what we'd done in Haiti in rural Rwanda. And the Clinton Foundation was a major partner of ours, and the, uh, the main partner, of course, being the Ministry of Health of Rwanda. This is what happened. First, the Rwandans didn't want aid. They wanted accompaniment. They wanted partners. They wanted it's true, they said, that we're poor and you're not, that we're coming out of the genocide and you're not, but we don't want these disequilibriums and inequalities in our work. We want solidarity accompaniment. And we said, yeah, you know, we, we buy that. So we were sent as partners in health, and some of you have supported this work, to, again, rural areas where, in this case, there was an abandoned hospital. It had been abandoned since the war and genocide, and we reopened it. Because that healthcare delivery model going from hospital to clinic to community health workers. That's what we were trying to build. And so we saw patients like this all the time. This is John before with, again, same two diseases, AIDS and tuberculosis, and John a few months afterwards. And to my own medical students, I have noted he goes from looking like Skeletor to looking like he needs Lipitor. <laughs> which we want, right? We want, we'd rather have and then the question of scale, which we'll get a chance to discuss, right? How do you scale something up? And a lot of you are studying public health and going, and I met a lot of pre, pre-meds and pre-nursing students today. Bringing things up to scale through the public sector is a, doesn't mean that we were from the public sector, Partners Health, NGO, non-governmental organization, Harvard University, a non-governmental organization. But we worked with the public health authorities to bring this to scale across Rwanda. That's what a right is, right? If you, some, if you have a right to health care, it's not conferred by someone like me or an NGO. It's conferred by the state. And the effects have been stunning. This is, these are probably the steepest declines in AIDS-related mortality ever seen. I'm quite sure that's true. Anywhere in the world, including the United States, across Europe, etc. Steepest rate of decline. And it's not just AIDS mortality, it's all-cause mortality because this was used to build up a system of healthcare delivery. And again, when we look at the the declines in child mortality, all-cause, we see that Rwanda is the world leader in the rate of decline and has now surpassed other countries in Africa, including those that are wealthier, and it's catching up with the whole world. Now, these, as I said, are the steepest declines in mortality that we could find anywhere in human history, where there is any kind of reasonable data. So we need to ask why. And, uh, I mean, it's a, we need to ask. I feel like we, as a profession, as medicine, nursing, public health, but just as a species, how do you do this? What... What are the reasons that it would be speedier there? Part of that, again, has to do with this model of linking community-based care to clinical services and even hospital services. So there are lessons to be learned for the United States as well. When we published these data last year, people understood, sometimes in the popular press, and this is the 20th anniversary this week of the beginning of the genocide. 
And again, to go from the poorest and most miserable country on the face of the earth to one that's recovering with health, the health sector leading in many ways, I think does pose important questions, including for our health system here, which is very weak on community-based care, as many of you know. Now, closing, opening up to discussion, I know a lot of you have supported Partners in Health and through some very difficult times. This is the Haiti, again, the same numbers, child mortality, AIDS mortality, again, with programs like PEPFAR, which I mentioned already, or the international, the multilateral lateral organization, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. These are the two biggest and most ambitious health financing efforts for poor people that I can find, again, anywhere in human history. So that's also important to know. But you can build, use these resources to build health systems. And in Haiti, was not going as fast as Rwanda, but it was on a good track until the earthquake. And uh, I, I can't even look at this graph without fe- you know, remembering very difficult times that were not so long ago. And Partners in Health had a very difficult uh, set of decisions to make. And I'm not sure everyone was in unanimous support for our decision. Uh, even internally, we had a lot. What do we do? You know, we're, we've been here 25 years. A lot of people have sent us donations unsolicited. And if we had known how to solicit them, we would have, but we didn't have to. More than half of all American households donated to earthquake relief in Haiti, which I think says something wonderful about the generosity that is endemic, as an epidemiologist might say, in these parts. But what do, what do we do? And we decided that going right back to that town of Mirbalé, where there still was no functioning hospital that could take, certainly they could take people who were victims of trauma, either kind of trauma, by the way, trauma from an earthquake or a car accident, or the other kind of less visible trauma that people experience after such disruption in their lives or loss. And so we said we're going to build a teaching hospital, and it has to be things like carbon neutral. I didn't even know what carbon neutral meant when my teenage daughter first mentioned to me, which was embarrassingly recently. But we knew that was right, that we needed to do something new. So we laid out this ambitious plan, and uh, the need for it to be a teaching hospital, this is the National Nursing School in Fort-au-Prince. This is the main nursing school in Haiti. And as you can imagine... Most of the students and the faculty in that building at 4.53 in the afternoon did not survive. And uh, so we needed something that could train doctors and nurses and managers and pharmacists and serve a lot of people with complex illnesses. So this is what we proposed. Again, I, I, I know there were people who scoffed at this as, a, you know, as something that I can't tell you. One of my um, colleagues is an obstetrician I've worked with since he was an intern. 20-something years ago, a Haitian guy, he said, could you please explain to me, Paul, what's a white elephant, and why does everyone keep telling us that we're building a white elephant? <laughs> By the way, he knew very well what they were saying. Um, and so, but we felt we had enough support from people who understood the need to go from aid to accompaniment, who understood the difference between alms for the poor and real solidarity and the, that would allow us to provide quality care. And so, even though this is a drawing, this is a, not a drawing. That's Mia Ballet today.
that Mibale is the largest solar-powered hospital in the developing world. Um, it is the site of training for physicians and nurses. It's been open for a year. Some of you are opening it uh, step by step. I hope more and more of you will come to visit. We've got a lot of work to do, I hope, together. And the big question, of course, with which I'll open the... This is the one I get every day. Is it sustainable? Now, I don't have an answer to this question, so we'll open up to, to uh, our discussion with Dean and all of you, but I will say that there seems to me, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but it seems to me there's an increasing rate at which I get asked this question. I think it's statistically significant. <laughs> and if we keep asking with the wrong tone, is it sustainable, instead of how do we sustain this, we will soon replace other words in our language, English, with this word sustainable, so much so that eventually all of our sentences will contain the word sustainable and then we'll just be saying sustainable, sustainable, sustainable. Thank you and I look forward to our discussion. I think you spend part of your world in Rwanda, part of your world in Haiti, part of your world at Harvard, and you flew in from Siberia, seriously, you did, last night. Do you have any idea even where you are right now? I do. I do. How do you, I'm that, in San Francisco. No, <laughs> seriously, though, how do you do that? I mean, that's a, how do you maintain that? I'm you not going to use it. I love this work, and I know a lot of people who love this work. And uh, it, it would be great if you could be in many places at, at once, but... Um, it's very... I was saying to one of the students today um, that this work is uplifting because if you, if you try and you work with other people and you have a, a, a team approach to building healthcare systems that can endure um, and, of course, pay attention as to people right there in front of you, the patient, you know, how do you... Um, then people get better. And people, at the very least, those who are not going to get better know that you're, you care and you're with them and you're present to them. I, I think it's... That means something, it? it? means a lot. And it's not just doctors and nurses who can do that. I mean, we can all think about how to be present to, right. to people who are facing, in this case, poverty and serious illness. Do you think when the way you grew up has anything to do with how you're identifying with uh, the poor and, and people of scarcity? I mean, okay, on a bus, you grew up on a bus. In a bus, the, actually. In a, in a bus, yeah. That's yeah, right. They let, they let you in every now and then. Um, and then in a tent. And I then, can imagine living on the bus also is why. I, you probably, yeah. And, and then in a boat that was eventually beached uh, in Florida. And, and, I mean, you would have to carry water containers to the local convenience store just to get water. So this is how you grew up. So are you seeing that this is, of course, how you turned out as an adult? Well, I could point out that my youngest brother was a professional wrestler for 10 years, so he had a rather different career than I did. (laughs) When the Haitians see him, they say, same mother, same father. Um, And so in the choice of profession, clearly, I came from a large family, you know, the answer is no. But I do believe that my family, my brothers and sisters, and my parents do share a sense of sensibility about other people's stuff. I'm very grateful 
um, to have grown up in, in such a family, actually. And, and I, I attribute, especially now that I'm older, a lot to, to them. And, I, you know, you learn a lot growing up in a big family under uh, challenging, if not adverse, circumstances. Um, I, I, that said, I'm not saying that all of you should move from San Diego into a bus <laughs> or a tent. And definitely not a boat that's no, not really not a boat. You know, I, I think one of my favorite uh, anecdotes out of Mountains Beyond Mountains about you as a child was fourth, okay, you're in fourth grade, you've decided you're going to start a herpetology club. Well, doesn't everyone? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. I know, that's a no-brainer, but... but but you had with herpetology. <laughs> but, but you had all these drawings and, and, and things. By and the way, that's reptiles and amphibians, not herpes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Later, later in life, I would train as the other kind of herpetologist. Sorry. Well, that actually changes my question completely. <laughs> you know, Tracy Kidder approached me about doing my story. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. I find it. I find it newsworthy. In fact, yeah. I've already begun volume one. Yes, I yeah. Just have and let you we, know. We, we were gonna, we were going to call it molehills beyond molehills. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to herpetology. <clears throat> Fourth grade, you invite the whole class to come over to your bus or boat or tent or whatever, wherever you were, and you're in a a bathrobe that's supposed to look like a lab coat, and you've got all these drawings. I see the similarities, okay? I, I was in fourth grade. No, this is awesome. And, and you've got all these drawings, but what happened? I cannot believe that this is the substance of our discussion. I finally <laughs> get I just, here. I love it. I just me. love this story, because it says something about your family. Well, actually. I clearly, I did not tell Tracy, story, Tracy Kidder that story. That was clearly one of my brothers or sisters, so I have to retract the nice things I said about my siblings now that I think about it. Now, what happened? Well, I tried to start a herpetology club and no one came to the meeting. Okay, you feel good? Yeah. <laughs> my I'm mother made, superior, yeah. My mother made Rice Krispie treats anyway and, you know, she was there for me. She was there, but so were your brothers and sisters, well, as I recall. Well, my father forced them to go. All right. Now you've... Now you've humiliated me in front of 1,500 people. <laughs> no, my, my purpose was to tell... Just tell what an awesome family you had, because they all gathered around and still made the Rice Krispie treats. And uh, under you know threat of physical right. punishment. Okay, from okay, my okay, very okay. large father. All right, I I withdraw the question. We'll edit it out. In the book Mountains Beyond Mountains, Tracy Kidder writes this. What is the, with you in Mountains Beyond Mountains? Well, because I'm I'm jealous. Obviously, I I want mine written about me. The, the here's here's what he writes. The world is full of miserable places. One way of living comfortably is not to think about them, or when you do, to send money. So now my question for you is, you've consciously made an effort at changing that kind of thinking, right? Uh, You want us to think about miserable places, right? Yeah, I do. I think that it's a a good exercise to, to acknowledge that you live in a world that's not the world that you get to set the boundaries. It's not, it's not, you know, people talk about the third world. We don't live in three worlds. We live in one world. And, um, you know, I think there's something really, and you've written about this, 
there's something really not not just ennobling about service to others. I think it's very gratifying. And again, I I know this has been the subject of a lot of your work. Uh, service to others is the way we make the world a better place or less miserable. And uh, so it's not only miserable places because there's joy in it, all those places as well. I mean, I, I, did I mention I came from Siberia? No, so no. no I, I would just say, you know, I had a great time as, as I usually do there because there's so much progress being made in, inside the prison system where... There's a lot of problems, including some new problems that I hadn't even heard about. But there's also um, progress being made. So I guess I would say, yes, I want people to look at miserable places because I think we can do so much to make them, uh, if not free of misery, uh, certainly uh, to have a lot less of it. And I, and I think other people will find this as gratifying as, yeah. as I have it in my... I mean, we have a lot of coworkers too, Partners in Health. Uh, has is not a small out, outfit anymore. I I was just really struck by by one account where you're trying to give a spinal tap to a Haitian girl, a little Haitian girl who is screaming, "It hurts!" Oh yeah, and I'm hungry, in the same scream, and I just thought that just sort of crystallizes yeah. the problem, doesn't it? Yeah, I hadn't I'd forgotten all about that. I mean. Uh, and that's another one. You like Tracy Kidder's book. I can see that. <laughs> but yes, I remember that. You know what? I've read your books too. I read. Uh, I remember that very well. And I was. I was. You know, floored even after having been there all that time. You know, that uh, that she said that. Yeah, but but you you hear something like that, and something in you has to say this is not okay. Yeah. And this that's part of what motivates you, right? Is the yeah, this is not okay? But, but then, when, when my experience is of bringing others involved into this work, is that they agree that this is not okay. I mean, for example, the work uh, in Siberia is really it's by people who are not only from Russia; they're Siberian. They're from that particular oblast, as they call them in Russia, Tomsk. And the work they're doing, uh, you know, with um, sometimes little more than cheerleading um, from us is uh, very life-affirming. And so they're saying it is not okay inside our prisons for people to die uh, because they don't have the right diagnosis or treatment. I've seen that all over the world. And that is people, when given a chance to do this kind of work. Again, I'm thinking of healthcare delivery for people marginalized by poverty or in the case of um, you know, some of the places we work, racism or you know, bad policies that lead to um, epidemics of incarceration. You know, that happened in the United States as it did in Russia. And in the United States, a decade early, a decade earlier, there was uh, you know, an epidemic of incarceration that led to major outbreaks of tuberculosis and HIV in places like here as well. <laughs> and um, you know, bringing people into this work, whether they're health providers or not, has been one of the best parts about it because I think a lot of folks agree it's not okay. Yeah. You've, you've, you uh, translate this Haitian proverb uh, this way. Um, God gives us humans everything we need to flourish but he's not the one who's supposed to divvy up the loot. That charge was laid on us. 
Yeah, I mean, how have we done so far? Well, I'm not sure that I translated that well. You know, for those of you here, Haitians, it's quite literally God gives, he doesn't divide. That's my interpretation of what that means. Bon Dieu, qu'on ne baille pas, qu'on ne sépare. And I, you know, but we're not doing very well as a species, right? Or, and I think we have serious problems as a nation as well in thinking really critically about inequality. And again, I'm an optimist in the sense that I've just said to you already that I think if you lay things out for people in a way that's clear and where they can be involved in some meaningful way, they'll say that's not okay. It's not okay that some people, you know, uh, have so much while others have so little. And it's not okay in proximity. For example, I was just in Silicon Valley um, and was surprised at the rate of homelessness there. So not okay in proximity. That's one of the richest places on the face of the earth and in human history, right? And, but it's not okay without proximity as well. And again, if we live in one world, not three, it's not okay somewhere that we can't see or will never be. And uh, so we're, we're not, we're doing well in some areas, that is reduction of child mortality, rolling out some of the basics that we should have, that we, that should be straightforward, vaccine preventable illness, for example, among children. Um, and you think about some groups that really have very little to do with uh, just that example of vaccines, Rotary International. Rotary International is a major funder of that work. Uh, And those guys and gals now, I guess, I was talking to a friend of yours who's in Rotary just today, and he was pointing out that when he started speaking there, it was all men. But anyway, now they're guys and gals, how forward-thinking of them. And uh, they've put hundreds of millions of dollars into vaccinating kids in some far-off place. That's a good thing. That's progress. And again, I think it proves my point that we can do, we can do a better job. Someone must have said, and I should know the history of this because it's kind of my job, someone must have said to the Rotary Clubs, we should get involved in getting rid of polio. Somebody said to Bill Gates, you should get rid of polio. And you know, that's part of our job, and your job too. Mine and yours and a lot of people in here is to say, hey, this is a big problem. We should get involved and uh, make it less of a problem. So that's where we're falling short, I think. That's different from establishing some sort of um, equality from a a governmental agency, because then as soon as you start talking about an unequal planet, somebody leaps to Marxism. And, and, and of course, you want a redistribution of wealth. And of course, I don't even think even Marx leapt to Marxism, but... Not, not, the, way, not the way we've yeah. interpreted him. Yeah. So, well, Jesus certainly leapt to it, I'll tell you. You know, I don't know about Marx, but for sure, you know, that was the, that's the core message of the gospel. Right? That inequality is not, not okay. okay. That your neighbor, that you don't get to decide who your neighbor is. Um, that's, that's not your job. Let's go ahead and talk some theology here. Oh, no. <laughs> See, I put my mouth in it. I put yeah, my foot in it. Yeah. Partners in Health is not a faith-based organization, but it clearly, as I read what you're about, is clearly shaped by what I read in Matthew 25. Jesus saying, did you visit the sick? 
Did you visit those in prison? Did you give food to the hungry? Did you give water to, to those who are thirsty? It, is that a driving, is that one of the drivers for Partners in Health, a, a, a paragraph like that out of Matthew 25? I think for sure it is. Um, again, it's a, a secular organization. Um, it's even required to be, I guess. I'm not a big follower of process. Um, but, you know, people from all sorts of faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds understand how compelling that series of commands is. And, um, you know, even when I, when I go back and look at these so-called corporal works of mercy as an adult, you know, I mean, I never listened and we used to call it CCD. I can't even remember what that means, but Sunday school. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Why was it called CCD? Anyway, <clears throat> it was I Sunday thought that school. was a disease. Yeah, it sounds sort. like we're a, or a federal bureaucracy yeah, mandating that's equality. Right. Um, same, same thing. Go ahead. But, you know, I, I, I couldn't have told you after going to Sunday school for, a, a, you know, however many years I did what the, the corporal works of mercy were. But then looking back as an adult, having spent, having been trained in clinical medicine and having spent time in Haiti, you read them and you say, well, yeah, we should visit the prisoners and we should clothe the naked and you know, it's just, you, all these years later, in 2000, the year 2000, you know, again, I told, you, I, uh, I told you, I don't know where you were when I was giving my talk, back there somewhere. But I told them, in case you weren't listening, <laughs> yeah. that I was here. in 1983, you know, going to Haiti uh, as a 23-year-old was really uplifting in many ways, but certainly difficult. Um, but take the corporal works of mercy and then, go ahead 2,000 years, quite literally, to the year 2000, when the Millennium Development Goals were written. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm glad I was part of that, but if you look at the MDGs, and there are eight of them, Millennium Development Goals, and compare them to the Corporal Works of Mercy as laid out 2,000 years previously, they're not too different. <laughs> I mean, you might not hear a lot about malaria, uh, and HIV wasn't around, but the other stuff, still there. So I think, I think people do, at Partners in Health do draw on, on especially on, on liberation theology, you know, the, the part about attending to the needs of the poor and helping to attack poverty. You know. That's true of other faith traditions too, though. I mean, Islam has a very, very strong uh, tradition in taking care of the poor, so does Buddhism, so does the Hindu. So, I mean, that isn't unique to Christianity. But throughout scripture, the, the Christian scriptures, I, you know, there's, there's a, a drumbeat in there that says you have an obligation to take care of the poor. And um, I'm not sure that's always, uh, that doesn't always preach in our churches. Yeah. No, I think in the in affluent countries like ours and across Europe as well, um, I think that message has been moved out as somehow tangential or not central. And uh, I think that's historically false, but also a bad idea. Because again, we don't live in three different worlds. And if we can wall ourselves off... Listen, you know, I w- I don't, I, if I can wall myself off personally and not live in close proximity to poverty, that, I would like to do that. Who wouldn't? Yeah, I'm staying in a nice hotel here, right? That's nice view of the yachts out in the bay 
or is it a bay or an ocean? Some such body of water that's outside right here. (laughs) You know, what's not to like, right? But just because you can't see it, you know, doesn't mean it's not there. And I think that's been a a problem in, uh, in some of our churches, as you say, is that because we can wall it off, then we do. And that's intellectually, morally, socially, and there's cost to that. And, and what, what is the cost to that? The cost is, well, if you're trying to go back to Matthew 25, you, you really can't do the work of accompaniment if there's not enough proximity. Again, you have to bridge those worlds somehow. So that's a cost, and I think that's a very high cost. To not be able to, I just told you that uh, I find this work uplifting. I wouldn't want to not be able to do this work. And if you have, if you're a gifted empath, right, if you're someone who really, and I, I heard someone say tonight, you know, I'm not going to be the one over there delivering primary care services. I'm not a doctor, but I'm really, I really care about that. That's to me someone who, who maybe needs less prompting than the rest of us mortals do, right? Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, you need some reminder or connection. I know I do, you yeah. know, and I get that from people who are sick and vulnerable, and poor, um, but you know, finding ways to not wall ourselves off too much, I think, is a challenge for people who live in affluence, as I do. You know, sure. I'm a you know tenured Harvard professor, and not, and even though I did live in a bus when I was 18, off I went to Duke University, and when I was in Haiti, you know, for a year when I was 23, I knew that I would be leaving to go to the United States to mm-hmm. medical school. I didn't know I'd go to Harvard Medical School, but I knew I would go to medical school. And that, you know, to me, is, a, is the time, 23, when I really thought, I can't pretend I didn't see this, or that it has no solution. You know, that I can't pretend, A, that I didn't see it, or that it doesn't exist in plenty of places in the United States as well, or that it's insoluble, that poverty is so complex and difficult that we can't, solve it. That's just not true. You know, you can say the poor will always be with us. Yeah, but will it be, you know, billions of people or hundreds of millions of people or millions? How do we shrink that and not go forward with extreme poverty and not go forward with growing inequality? Those are problems for which we, listen, if we can put a man on the moon or whatever we are now, I forget where we are. We got a car, we we have a car on Mars. We have a car on Mars, some kind of rover thing, Yeah. which I'm all for it, right? Yeah. Good. But if we can do that, you can't tell me we can't figure out how to get clean water to Haiti, you know? Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to something you had said before about uh, people uh, that, that anybody can get involved, or at least uh, at, at, at some level. Why don't, why doesn't everybody why doesn't everybody just see what you see? Why, why doesn't everybody get involved and, 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 and just engage? What's keeping us from doing that? Uh, well, I mean, I, it's, it's frightening to acknowledge the enormity of... I mean, let me just go back to being a physician. And when you're trained as a physician in an academic medical center, and then you stay in one and you say you become a specialist... At, at, at Harvard, at the you know Harvard's teaching hospital, most people do, right? Um, they be, they become a cardiologist or a you know 
infectious disease doctor or a surgeon or a pediatric surgeon. You know, that's the way, that's the circles I, I move in on the U.S. side. And you realize that there are sharp limitations on your effectiveness for patients with significant social problems like housing instability, you know, go through the list, don't have a job, etc. You want not to see that, right? You'd rather you think, well, what am I going to do? I'm not a social worker or I don't control rent uh, subsidies in the city of Boston, right? So even there with all these resources and tools at our disposal, it's, I've seen it be alarming to clinicians. You know, an ICU, if the, an ICU doctor um, were, fought, were to follow patients out of the ICU into their communities, some of them poor communities, you'd see, wow, my work was undone. I saw lots of patients admitted to one of the world's greatest hospitals get good therapy inside the hospital and then go home and not be able to fill their prescriptions, right? Or not be able to keep them filled or not understand English well enough to fill them. And that's, again, why we push forward accompaniment. Mm -hmm. It's not that, and back to your question about, well, I'm not going to do that. It's not that the, let's say, neurosurgeon who does a procedure needs to go do the accompaniment. It's that it needs to be done for a lot of us, a lot of patients. And uh, I'll just give an example. Uh, A patient comes in, doesn't speak English, gets diagnosed with, with AIDS, in a first-time diagnosis, because he has a parasitic infestation in the brain, which is classic for AIDS, called neurotoxoplasmosis. Goes to the operating room, has a hole drilled into his head. This is a guy who, who has a seizure. Um, his life gets saved, really, you know, and then he gets put on the right therapy for the for both the, his AIDS and what's called opportunistic infection, right? Parasitic infection. Doesn't really understand, not because he uh, doesn't, because he's not, he's, he's just had brain surgery. He doesn't understand English. His wife doesn't understand. And leaning on a teenage daughter who kind of transacting as a translator, guy goes home, doesn't take the medication, right, relapses. Now that, to me, is scary. The surgeons are thinking, I did my bit, right? I, he had a great outcome. He went to the operating room, he survived, he went home. But see, that's not accompaniment, right? And it's not the job of the surgeon to go marching off 45 minutes from Boston to go make sure that that patient is able to take his medication. But again, back to your cardiology colleague here, that's the point of accompaniment. It's not that we have to do it, it's that it must be done. Now that's scary just inside a very well-resourced teaching hospital. Imagine now you're in a doctor or a nurse in rural Haiti, right? You can't hide away things. It's just so in your face that people's social conditions determine how they're going to do in response to your diagnosis and prescribed therapy. And I think it's good that we acknowledge that. But why, you know, why would, I mean, if you're not, if you don't have the resources to move to that patient because you're a physician or nurse, then you can usually end up saying, well, that's not my job. Again, it might not be your job, but it needs to be somebody's job for us to realize the full potential.
But what you just described is, it just strikes me as so inefficient. What, are you going to call me Marxist again? <laughs> yeah, no, so no. Either white no, no, a, a neo, neo-colonialist. By the way, I am white, yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, uh, but it's just so inefficient I'm, it, because, as I understand yeah. your definition of accompaniment, it is to come alongside or make sure someone is coming alongside yeah. as long as it takes. That's right. That? That's a, that's a, I didn't even make up the definition of accompaniment. I mean, somebody else did or some other people did. I got that from liberation theology, as you know, because I know you read my last book, even though you mentioned only Tracy Kidder's book. But... <laughs> I, I, you know, it's one of the things I pulled out of a theologian's work on accompaniment. He says accompaniment is over when the person being accompanied says it's over, not when the person doing the accompaniment says it's over. I think that's right. That's but a really, challenge. In, it's scary. But yeah. investing, investing our, our, ourselves, our resources, our time open-ended like that? Yeah. That's what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Love, Paul. <laughs> that's what accompaniment is. Thanks. So we have a lot of people in the audience and a lot of people who will be watching this uh, who are medical students, nursing students, people who want to go into the sciences. There are a lot of people in this audience who are already in the medical world and in the sciences. Can you give them some advice? How, how, how to think about where do we go from here? Well, one bit of advice is, you know, we've been talking about just now, especially about some of the challenges in healthcare delivery, right? And I want to say, though, for those contemplating a career or a vocation, an even better term, in medicine or nursing, I think it's to, you know, great area. And I've loved it from before I even started medical school and still do today. So for those who say it's no longer rewarding or um, exciting or promising, it's not my experience. I think it's never been more rewarding, promising, or exciting. There are problems, but they're all soluble problems. You know, people say, well, what about all the red tape? But it's not like, again, the red tape got handed down, you know, from on high. Thou shalt have red tape, right? <laughs> it's... It's not like Matthew 25. <laughs> that wasn't you know? in Matthew 25, I'm, I'm certain. And, you know, we got new communication platforms. We got new, we can, these are not, these are soluble problems. So for those of you thinking about a career in medicine or nursing or any other direct service delivery, please join us. It's terrific. For those interested in basic science, just think the tools that people like me and the organizations like Partners in Health are delivering the so-called deliverables, where do they come from? They come from basic science investments. And, and a lot of them get the second, that's the first D, discovery. The second D, D, development of drugs, a lot of that's done by the pharmaceutical industry. You know? And the third D, delivery, that's us. You know, that's some of the people interested in this indirect service delivery. All that works together, and it, that's why it's an exciting time. There's going to be more basic science discovery. I can only imagine what's coming down the pike in the next 30 years for those, think, 50 years for those thinking about it. So right now, there's going to be, we gotta, we'll keep finding ways of working with the private sector and public sector on developing new tools. Um, you know, why not a vaccine for HIV, TB, malaria, hepatitis C? I'll bet you we'll have one for hepatitis C. 
We now have a cure. Ten years ago, we didn't have a cure for hepatitis C. Now we got a brand new cure. Everybody ought to know about it because we need that third D to deliver these innovations. That's going to be, require a lot of passion, a lot of commitment, and a workforce, <clears throat> including doctors and nurses and community health workers, who feel passionately about the D that is delivery. Dr. Paul Farmer, thank you very much for being with thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.